Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Narjos Flores, an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a thoracic medical oncology at Dana-Farber. I'm one of your hosts for Lung Cancer Considered. Today, we're covering the North American Conference on Lung Cancer in Chicago, Illinois. This is a live coverage of the data that soon will be presented in our oral presentations. And today we have two special guests. First, we have Dr. Carolyn Presley, Assistant Professor on the Tenure Track in the Division of Medical Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine at The Ohio State University and the James Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Presley completed her residency in internal medicine and combined fellowship at Yale University. We have master's in health science also from Yale and completed the Robert Wood Johnson's Foundation Clinical Scholars Program. It is my pleasure to have Dr. Presley here discussing with us the results of her study, NutriCare, how we see food as medicine for our patients with lung cancer. After the discussion with Dr. Presley, we are discussing the results of the study by Alexandra Porter. Alexandra Porter is the co-founder and the president of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. She will be discussing how pack years may be biased against populations of color when it comes to lung cancer screening. Now, we're going to take it over with a discussion with Dr. Presley. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Caroline Presley. She's an assistant professor on the tenure track in the Division of Medical Oncology in the Department of Internal Medicine at, at The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center and the James Cancer Center. She graduated from the University of Minnesota for undergrad degree and went to pursue her medical degree at Darwin Medical School, completing fellowship and residency at Yale University. Dr. Presley, I have known him for quite some time, and she is very interested in improving patients' quality of life uh, with thoracic malignancies. She's also involved in drug development and many other amazing things. So she is presenting right now in our meeting her study called that is treatment-related toxicities, diet quality, and hospitalizations among patients with lung cancer and the NutriCare study, a food is medicine intervention. Welcome, Dr. Presley, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I was recently promoted to associate professor with tenure. So I'm really, really happy to be recognized for the work that this team is is doing and all the uh, support that we've been getting around this study. So thanks so much for for having us. And I I feel like this has really been uh, a, a, a major study uh, that took a, a big team. And so right off the bat, just acknowledging that I'm presenting this work as a representative on behalf of all the NutriCare investigators. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I, your, the site is still not updated. So we have to talk to the Ohio <laughs> State to update the site because I just checked it in today. Yeah. 
and you know I don't like to downgrade the accomplishment of any woman in I medicine. Know. So no, no, it's it's so recent. So no worries at all. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna blame it on the oh, the Ohio State uh, <laughs> website. So let's start the conversation about food and cancer, just as a general conversation. We spend so much time talking about drugs, drugs, and drugs. Yes. Why is it important to see food as medicine as well, Dr. Presley? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's it's really overlooked and I think under-recognized. And it's really the first medicine, essentially, that we give our bodies every day, right? And so much depends on it. And I think that the biggest key is that it's modifiable. And it's within patients' control. And not only patients, but their loved ones also can contribute to the nutrition in not only of the patient, but of the entire household. And so it's something that patients have control over. Their loved ones can contribute, but we can modify it. And not just in one way, but in many ways. And I think it is something that we all need to focus more on uh, as more and more drugs are coming to market in different combinations. Uh, We can't ignore nutritional status because of how the more drugs we add together, the more toxicities and side effects we can see. And if we're not able to nourish our bodies on the most basic level, it, it really prevents us from getting, it can prevent us from getting really any cancer treatment, right? So I think focusing on food as medicine is um, should really be part of this new treatment wave. And it's just not as expensive as all these cancer medications. And don't get me wrong, we need cancer medications too. Absolutely. But I think this is low hanging fruit, you know, a bad nutrition joke, but this is low hanging fruit in terms of what we can support patients and their loved ones in doing. I do think that we know our patients eat more frequently than they, they get infusions right? Even if they're in a TKI, they eat more than once a day. Right. And even if the TKI is twice a day, they eat more than twice a day, uh, hopefully. So they are more exposed to food that they may be exposed to the drugs, right? In frequency. Yeah. And now we know with immunotherapy in particular, that the microbiome or the, the bacteria that live in your gut are actually pretty key to whether or not uh, the t- your immune system will be activated and the, these drugs will actually work, right, to uh, treat the, to see a tumor response. And so not only do we know that weight and, and weight loss is, is, is a poor predictor for how patients will do, but we know that we're able to now harness the microbiome to perhaps change the way that the body will respond or develop side effects from some of these newer immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so that's actually a part of this study that we're not presenting uh, today, this afternoon, but we are also collecting microbiome samples uh, from the stool, from the stool of the participants in both, both groups of this, of the NutriCare study. Um, But Maybe I could just, uh, yeah, go ahead. 
No, I think before we dig into the um, the sign of the study, there is one thing that in your presentation is very striking to me, and is that 45 to 69% of patients with lung cancer are malnourished. Can you talk to us a, li a little bit about this statistic and what that means in the reality or or listeners, patients, and providers? Yeah, so we know, it, and again, it's based on the on the study, but we know that they're not getting uh, the the daily recommended intake of of key components of their diet, and 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 it's not necessarily a measure of whether they're living in a food desert or things like that. But we know that based on um, whether they've had weight loss in the past six months. Or um, if they are their BMI at the time of, of treatment start, depending on there's many ways to measure um, malnutrition, but depending on the study, we know that it's basically over a third of our patients are malnourished at treatment start, and then over a third uh, will experience significant weight loss during the treatment. And we see that we see cancer related cachexia develop. Uh, in many of our patients. And unfortunately, we don't have a good way of predicting who that will happen to and who it won't. But we uniformly know that that is not good. And it is associated with um, worse outcomes, including death. Thank you so much. So now let's dig into NutriCare. For our listeners, can you give us a um, uh, explanation of the study, including the design, who was included and including the sites of where patients are being recruited? Yeah. So the two co-PIs are Dr. Spees and Dr. Zhang at Tufts and Ohio State University. And then I'm the site PI um, for the Ohio State University, but was really involved in the, even in the early funding conversations uh, with the funder of this study, really from the initial concept and throughout the design of the the study and implementation. So it's it's Tufts, Fox Chase, Ohio State, and then MD Anderson are the are the four main academic sites. And we really focused on these four sites because we thought we would get a depth and breadth of different areas of the country, but also investigators who were committed to exploring this supportive care study, right? And I think one interesting thing about this study is it's highlighted, I think, the infrastructure of how we do cancer clinical trials. And uh, supportive care is, I think, really under-resourced uh, compared to uh, cancer clinical trial infrastructure study, like research infrastructure, but I'm actually hoping this study, the NutriCare study, will, will help to change that in terms of showing how supportive care interventions, uh, such as nutri aggressive nutritional support, can really improve outcomes. And so uh, with our, our, our study team, we Essentially, any patient uh, who has a new diagnosis of lung cancer, whether it's small cell, non-small cell, as long as they're older than 18, and they do have to meet uh, vulnerability criteria. And so we really wanted to target patient populations who we thought could benefit uh, the most from receiving um, an uh, aggressive nutritional intervention. And so it is patients who are older than 65 they or they have to reside in a, a 
a rural area based on zip code, which is essentially less than 50,000 people in a in an area, or they have to be at or below 130, 130% of the federal poverty level, and or they could be an underrepresented racial or ethnic minority group or not have insurance. And so we really wanted to make sure that we were really um, trying to, if we were going to see an effect, really focus on patients who we felt potentially could benefit the most. And so these are our preliminary findings from our our phase one. and, And we were actually able to get Almost 30% of our patients actually live in rural areas, who I think is a, is a real strength of the, the cohort that we've been able to, to recruit. 16% are racial or ethnic minorities, 14% of no insurance, um, and 17% are low income. I think it's so important that you are that you and your team are tailored these interventions to the patient that needed the most. Because yeah, when we talk yeah. about nutrition, it's, it's a privilege, right? To eat organic, right. to be able yep. to have a supermarket close to your house is also a privilege when there's so many food deserts that are around the United States, for example. Yeah. And so once they're enrolled, they get randomized to either the NutriCare, the intervention arm, or the NutriTool, which is an enhanced control arm. So in the NutriTool arm, they do receive uh, a, a, a beautiful... Uh, nutritional packet. So we get, we do give them a booklet. And so we don't, we give them, it's an enhanced control because we are giving them, I would say a little bit more than standard of care. And um, because, you know, as, as you are very well aware, most larger academic medical centers, and especially if they have an NCI designation, they're required to have a, a registered dietitian really on staff as part of that NCI designation. But Realizing that we did want to give everyone at least some baseline knowledge in the in the form of a booklet that um, uh, uh, our team spent a long a long time developing. But then in the NutriCare in the intervention group, they receive weekly uh, nutritional counseling with an an RD, a registered dietitian. But then we we send them food. And for the first eight weeks, they get three meals a day and two snacks. And it is in partnership with MANA, which is a um, uh, a medically tailored meal company out of um, Philadelphia. And uh, it's sent to their home. And the first eight weeks, and then, and then, but we send them food for a total of, of 24 weeks. So that's six months of food. And we decrease the amount of food over time so that, they're building during that first initial eight weeks, we're really trying to build their knowledge and strategies and, and um, focus on then transitioning them essentially to being able to sort of improve their diet over time as the, the meals decrease, but it's, it's a full six months. I think that's wonderful. I think for many patients, so just to summarize it for, or uh, listeners. So, the study included two cohorts, 158 patients. Some of them were referred to NutriCare. That's the full intervention. And the NutriTool, which is the enhanced control group. Will they say that is an accurate description of the two arms in the study? That's correct. Okay. And this NutriCare included over six months of meals that were delivered to the patients. 
Yeah. And in our first um, group, in our first phase one, that that equals 12,390 meals and snacks delivered. And how, eight- was the, how was the resection of patients when you, you know, we usually enroll patients in clinical trials and we're asking so much of it. Yeah. So you design this trial to give to patients, yeah. which is very different that you need to be here. We need an MRI. We need this. You need to come. You come right. Here. How was the perception of these patients being enrolled? Because it's, it's over 127 patients with lung cancer were randomized. Yeah. And um, I, I want to say relief is probably the, one of the biggest emotions. Um, relief that we are actually helping them, but we're taking away the stress of getting food, acquiring food, preparing food, cooking food. Because so much is happening to them, as you stated, in such a short period of time and and getting that cancer diagnosis and starting treatment is the most stressful time of a lung cancer diagnosis. But so I think relief, but also so appreciative and thankful. And, um, and and we'll get into some of the, the outcome results. So we, we didn't realize how impactful this would be for patients and families. And it's in a way that you can't measure that necessarily in a survey or um, in, you know, the number of hospitalizations. So we ended up also doing qualitative interviews with our patients and their loved ones and are are presenting a, a whole separate qualitative analysis to really capture the joy of this intervention. And 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 we can talk a little bit about that in our in our quality of life data. We do start to sort of see that a little bit, but uh, it really goes to show how much qualitative research. Which I, I know we're I'm not presenting uh, at this NACLC conference, but yeah, it, I think it, it's been a real game changer for our patients uh, and their and their families and. Our, our medical staff as well uh, loves, they say, Dr. Presley, we love this study because it gives patients hope that there are things that they can do at home and, and we're teaching them and giving them the tools uh, on how to do it through diet. So as we talk about the design of the study, let's dig into the results. So what are some of the preliminary data that you are presenting at the meeting? Can you walk us to some of the results, Dr. Presley? Yeah, absolutely. So the the number one thing that, and again, it was randomized. And so we do know that the characteristics between each of the two groups were well-balanced. And the first thing that we uh, uh, presented on really was... Um, the the treatment related adverse events or the side effects from the cancer treatment themselves. And so we don't necessarily see a significant difference between the treatment related adverse events. And again, these are the traditional clinical trial metrics that we use when we're studying cancer drugs, right? So we actually weren't really surprised that we didn't see a difference because cancer drugs cause side effects, right? And so we, that's the the, the first thing that, that we looked at. And so NutriCare definitely wasn't uh, better, but it wasn't worse. And, but the really striking significant finding is the significant improvement in diet quality in the NutriCare group 
versus Nutritool. And actually how over time, even past the time point that we're providing those three meals a day. So we're decreasing the number of meals over the eight months, but the diet quality continues to improve. And so this is really, um, and, and again, this is just the, the phase one of this study. Our, our final sample size will be over 270 patients. So we're almost done accruing phase two. So even in this first preliminary phase one cohort, we're seeing that dramatic improvement in diet quality. Next, we looked at hospitalization lengths of stay and emergency department visits, and quality of life. So when we look at healthcare utilization metrics, this is, uh, this is important to patients. And I feel like often we don't report these for cancer, drug, clinical trials, but we know patients and loved ones really want to avoid the emergency department and the hospital because it's just, it's a really hard place to be. And so the length of stay related to cancer treatment toxicities, uh, we're seeing a trend that it's shorter by about two days in the NutriCare group versus the NutriTool group. So we know that these patients get admitted to the hospital frequently, whether it's due to cancer-related symptoms or toxicities from the treatment. But the one thing that we were really encouraged to see, even though they're still, both groups are still getting admitted to the hospital. Their length of stay could be significantly diff, uh, shorter. But again, right now it's not significant, but it, it's trending that way. So we're hoping by the end of the second cohort, we will see that as, as statistically significant. And then in the, the quality of life data, I actually think is, is some of the most exciting in addition to the, the diet quality data in that these patients are, are feeling better. And not only the NutriCare group is definitely seeing the biggest jump in improvement in their quality of life, but the NutriTool arm actually also experienced improvement as well, but it wasn't as big of a, a delta essentially. And so, but then when you look at the subscore of the EORTC um, QLQ30, we see significant improvements in the NutriCare group in things like role functioning, emotional functioning, cognitive functioning, which and, and an improvement in some of the, the main side effects that our, our patients are experiencing. But I, I do think um, the, the diet quality and quality of life findings are, are just really encouraging and some data that I, I don't share at this conference, but will be published is um, the, the level of food insecurity dramatically drops in the NutriCare arm, you know, not, not surprisingly. I think all this data is very exciting. And I really like that we're just moving forward, of, you know, with something seeing our patients as a whole, not as a disease, because they're more than their cancer. The cancer doesn't define them. And, one thing that I want to, you know, that you mentioned about emotional functioning, I think having food security significantly potentially decreases anxiety in patients, right? Yeah. So the big, and I, here I'm going to put my gender equity lenses like always, but a lot of these responsibilities lay in women. So having a break for having to have the responsibility to cook when you're going to treatment, that enough is probably significant help even better than probably Adivan. 
um, for these patients. I think this one, this word that Presley is just remarkable. And I, I'm so happy as a caregiver, a doctor, this, this is just what our patients need besides the drugs, of course, because right. if they are very malnourished, foreign is the drug, right? Right. And it's interesting that um, the our cancer medications are, are so expensive. So it would be what we're really hoping is that food is so much cheaper, right? And so we really are hoping for policy change to be proactive and provide um, uh, food for patients potentially like right from the get-go, not only post-hospitalization. And right now, Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans, some of which they will provide, again, sending food, frozen prepared meals to patients' homes, but it's only after they experience a hospitalization. So we're really trying to move it from a reactive approach to a proactive approach. And that's really what this study um, is, is one of the first to do is really just to, to do it before we're in crisis mode. Well, thank you so much. We are about to run out of time. So Dr. Presley, could you summarize the result studies and give us a little hint of what is next for NutriCare? <laughs> yeah. So um, really, this is you know one of the first RCTs to to demonstrate um, improvement, uh, significant improvements in diet quality and quality of life using an intention uh, intensive nutritional intervention, and that it's feasible specifically for vulnerable patients with lung cancer. And that um, next steps are we're going to finish our accrual for phase two, and and have a, a very very rich data set for to answer a lot of these questions but the take home is is that we really hope we're able to affect policy change particularly in this country uh, around in, improving food insecurity and, and malnutrition for for patients with lung cancer thank you so much we cannot wait to continue to see more of the results for NutriCare, and i think it also may open the door for our colleagues to start asking about food security Yes. A lot of patients feel ashamed to share this. So mm -hmm. if we start talking about nutrition, hopefully asking about food, secu food security becomes a routine question in our oncology visit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Presley. Thank you. Uh, we, we would love to have you back in the future when we have more updates about the study. Wonderful. Happy to. Thanks again. It's also my pleasure to have another of the investigators that have an auto session at the North American Conference on Lung Cancer. Um, Alexandra Porter is the co-founder and the president of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, and she's also a research coordinator at Mass General Hospital. She is presenting her work here about five years smoking history, uh, inadequate and biased measure to determine lung cancer screening eligibility. Before we dig into the study, uh, Alexandra, let's talk about five years. What are five years and how they came the idea that this may be a biased measure? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that question. So 
The pack year is a way to quantify an individual's exposure to tobacco. And so it's the number of cigarettes per day divided by 20 to get the number of packs per day smoked multiplied by the number of years smoked. And it's used as an eligibility criterion for lung cancer screening, emerged from its use in the National Lung Screening Trial, where they required all participants to have at least a 30 pack year smoking history. So basically, the pack year, it assumes that smoking duration and smoking intensity have equal importance in determining lung cancer risk. It gives it equal weight. But what a lot of studies have shown is that smoking duration is a lot more strongly associated with lung cancer risk than smoking intensity. And so what happens is for people who smoke fewer cigarettes per day, which happens to be a lot of racial minorities, and in particular, Black and Hispanic populations, the pack year underestimates their lung cancer risk. And so someone with 10 pack years who smoked a quarter pack of cigarettes per day for 40 years is going to be at higher risk than someone who smoked 10 pack years but smoked a pack a day for 10 years, if that makes sense. And so it's not um, a fair assessment of tobacco exposure among people who have smoked less intensely. And so the idea is that in using pack years, you might end up excluding a lot of high-risk populations who have smoked fewer cigarettes per day, but for very long durations. Thank you for explaining yeah. that. I think that this is a very good, a very good point. And something that I see as a clinician is that often pack years are also misdocumented yeah. in the charts mm -hmm. and they're not updated. What are your thoughts about that? Because sometimes electronic medical records have changed how we treat patients, but also they're very vulnerable to misinformation. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been numerous publications that have shown that pack your smoking history either isn't documented at all, or the components to calculate pack your smoking history aren't documented, or it's very inaccurate. And if you were to re go back and recalculate that patient's your smoking history, you would find that there's a lot more people who are eligible for screening than at first glance it would appear. Dr. Flores had noted the pack year, it is poorly documented in the electronic medical record, which presents a lot of issues in identifying patients for screening. There are also an another numerous problems with pack years that I did want to highlight before we jump into the methods of the study. The first is that patients' recollection of the average number of cigarettes they've smoked over the entirety of their smoking history is usually not very accurate. So we currently have an ongoing prospective study called the INSPIRE study for high-risk Black women and offering them lung cancer screening. And we have women who are 60 years old, we calculate their pack year smoking history and we ask them how many cigarettes per day did you smoke? And it'll be five cigarettes per day, but it's always a very hand-wavy answer. And they're like, over the entirety, ever since I've been 15, how many have I been smoking per day? It's really hard to just boil that down to one number. The other thing is most people will actually underestimate that number because no one wants to tell you that they've been smoking a lot of cigarettes per day. Everyone will tend to underestimate that number. And then the third thing is that a lot of people actually smoked more intensely at younger ages. So we'll ask them, well, how intensely, how many cigarettes per day were you smoking when you were 30? And so if it was five when they were 60, it's oftentimes 20 when they were 30. And so at that point, it's like, well, what number do you use? If I use five, they're ineligible. If I use 20, they are eligible. And it, gets, it just gets very, very complicated and very confusing and ultimately doesn't seem fair to make that decision for that patient, knowing that if you 
ultimately use what they're currently smoking, it's probably underestimating their smoking history and preventing them from getting a lung cancer screening. I think that's very important because smoking is more like a, like tobacco use. It's a dynamic process that gets affected by real life events. We know that patients frequency and number of cigarettes, we get affected by life events. Like I have my patients that tell me I quit smoking and then I go divorce and I pick up smoking again. And when we document it in the clinical records, it's like one number static. Uh-huh. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. Smoking, we fluctuate, even with financial aspects. Some patients cannot afford cigarettes when they're unemployed. And sometimes they get rehired and then they're able to kind of purchase a cigarette. So I think what all the points that you make are very important. So now let's dig into your study. Can you walk us to the design uh, and the methods? Because this is included over 49,000 uh, individuals. Yeah, thank you. So the overall motivation for the study was that currently Black people with lung cancer, a significantly lower proportion would have qualified for screening compared to white people with lung cancer. And this has been shown in numerous publications. And so we wanted to find, figure out one, why that would be, um, what was the cause of that, and then explore potential solutions to that. And so what we did was we analyzed two prospective cohort studies. The first was the Southern Community Cohort Study, which is a large cohort study of over 80,000 individuals, probably black and white, low-income individuals from 12 Southeast U.S. states. And that was the primary cohort we used for our analysis. The other cohort we analyzed was the Black Women's Health Study, which is a prospective cohort study of over 50,000 Black women from across the U.S., primarily from major metropolitan areas. And we did several analyses in our study. The first was we looked at, of individuals in the Southern Community Cohort Study, or SCCS for short, who were diagnosed with lung cancer, what proportion would have qualified under the 2021 USPSTF guideline. And then similarly, of Black women in the Black Women's Health Study diagnosed with lung cancer, what proportion would have qualified? And when we did that, we findings were quite striking. In the Southern Community Cohort Study, under the current USPSTF lung cancer screening guideline, only about 58% of Black lung cancer patients would have qualified for screening. So over 40% would not have been eligible for screening compared to 74% of white patients in the SECS. So there's a large disparity in screening eligibility. And then in the Black Women's Health Study, only 42.5% of Black women with lung cancer would have met the criteria for lung cancer screening. And so the majority of Black uh, women diagnosed with lung cancer would not have even been eligible to receive a lung cancer screening. And then what we did was we looked at, you know, what was the primary reason for ineligibility in both of these cohorts? And we found it was the 20 pack year criteria or cutoff. And so there was a lot of Black patients with lung cancer who had 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 pack years, but were did not cross that 20 pack year threshold that's required to be eligible for screening. And so we then asked, well, what's the cause of the difference in pack years, particularly between Black versus white individuals? Is it a difference in smoking duration or is it a difference in smoking intensity? And we found that smoking duration is actually quite similar between Black and white lung cancer patients. They tend to smoke a similar number of years at lung cancer diagnosis, but the average number of cigarettes smoked per day is very different. And 
black patients tend to smoke much fewer cigarettes per day compared to white patients. And the reason that's important is because if you recall from the beginning of this uh, interview, the factors underestimate lung cancer risk among people who smoke less intensely. And so from that, we can say that, you know, pack your smoking history likely underestimates lung cancer risk among Black individuals. And so moving forward from that, our next question was, well, if instead of using a 20-pack year cutoff to select individuals for lung cancer screening, what if we just simplified it and removed the whole aspect of smoking intensity and just used a 20-year smoking duration cutoff? So you remove the biases that are involved in asking someone how the average number of cigarettes they've smoked per day and you just ask for smoking duration. And so it's the same 2021 USPSDF guideline, but you replace the 20 pack years cutoff with a 20 year smoking duration cutoff. And when you do that, we call it the duration guideline. The proportion of black patients who would meet that guideline increases from 58% to 85%. And the proportion of white patients who would meet that guideline increases from 74% to 82%. And the important thing is that when using the duration guidelines, so not the pack year criteria, but the duration guideline, disparities in lung cancer screening eligibility are completely eliminated. We then validated that in the Black Women's Health study and found that use of a 20-year smoking duration cutoff instead of a 20-pack year cutoff increased the percentage of Black women who would have qualified for screening from 42.5 to 63.8%, so a really large increase in eligibility. I think you're making two very important points with the study. First is that most guidelines are excluding some of the most vulnerable populations. When we think about Black women and lung cancer, we think about intersectionality, about gender, the gender bias that is associated with lung cancer, that women don't get lung cancer, and then the racism and discrimination that these women face and how these two identities actually synergically, negatively multiply Mm -hmm. to affect these patients. So... Looking at the 20-year exposure instead of the 20-pack year significantly improved the inclusion of these patients. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay. How do you think these will be taken forward? Could these be presented to the guidelines to consider some of these modifications? Because we have modified the lung cancer screening guidelines Uh two to three times already with their latest modification a month ago. So what do you think you can take this moving forward? Yeah, no, thank you. It's a, a great question. As you noted, the American Cancer Society just came out with a revised guideline in which they took the 2021 USPSDF criteria and removed the 15 years since quitting requirement. And I think that's a really important revision to the guideline because there's there's no reason that someone who has quit smoking 16 years ago is all of a sudden at low risk of lung cancer and doesn't warrant screening them. I think what's important is we've actually looked at the impact of removing that criteria in our data set, the Southern Community Cohort Study, and have found that although it does increase the proportion of people eligible, it doesn't do anything to address the disparity in lung cancer screening eligibility. And in fact, it doesn't, the extent of the disparity actually widens a little bit when you do that. And so I think that, I think that they're, you know, removing the 15 year requirement is good and it addresses one problem, which is that it's currently excluding a lot of high-risk people who have formerly smoked but remain at high risk for lung cancer. I think our proposed change in this study is really getting at the disparity in lung cancer screening eligibility 
and what's driving that disparity and what's simple change we can make to eliminate that disparity. And it's also addressing part of the reason I think why lung cancer screening uptake continues to be really low, which is that it's hard to identify eligible patients. And so perhaps using 20 years instead of having to calculate pack years would actually make it easier for healthcare systems to identify patients who are eligible for screening and to get them into screening. And so moving forward, you know, I'm hoping that the USPSTF will take our data into consideration in future revisions. Uh, we are currently working on doing some CISNET modeling and looking at the impact of this change on the benefits and harms of lung cancer screening at the population level to see how this change would impact, you know, the rate of overdiagnosis, the rate of false positives, and some of the important harms of lung cancer screening that are important to consider when you're thinking about any change to the guideline. But I think overall, just hoping that people understand that right now the criteria being used are not equitable and that an important goal in defining eligibility criteria for cancer screening and lung cancer screening specifically should be making sure that the criteria we are using are equitable. I think it's a very good point. We're running about to run out of time, okay. but one of the messages that I think we can learn from other uh, cancer screening is that they made it very simple. Yeah. You're a woman, you have breath, yeah. then you get a mammogram. And I think moving and removing some of these obstacles in the criteria, like calculating back years, yeah. could potentially make it easy for the primary care doctor who has 15 minute appointments and three chief complaints yeah. plus the long cancer exactly. screening yeah. uh, discussion. Yeah, exactly. And I also think easier to identify patients in electronic medical record um, because you're not, you remove one of the data points that's often difficult to collect in identifying eligibility. But thank you for doing this work and thank you for being here with us in this uh, light discussion about some of the research that's being presented at the conference. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander Porter. And thank you for all the work you do to improve the race of lung cancer screening in the United States because your efforts have been nationwide. And I have seen that through the Lung Cancer Awareness Month, how you and your team have worked to continue to have a discussion and to increase these rates. Thank you so much. It's an honor. And that's a wrap for this episode when we're highlighting two uh, projects and research projects that were presented at the 2023 North American Conference on Lung Cancer. I would like to thank Dr. Presley from the Ohio State for discussing the data of the NutriCare study wheels, as well as Alexandra Porter, who discussed how back years can um, bias and affect the selection of patients for lung cancer screening. These two studies highlight the importance of inclusion, the importance of food security, and how many things that we may overlook may affect our patients with lung cancer and patients that potentially could be diagnosed with lung cancer. It is a pleasure to be with the two of them here in Chicago, and I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. You can listen to more episodes of Lung Cancer Considered at the, or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and also in ISSC.org and the Newsroom tab. My pleasure to be here with these two guests. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org in a newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, 
and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 